The reading for today's sermon comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful and gracious God, open your sacred mouth once more, we pray, that we may hear these words spoken afresh to us by the Spirit who even now indwells us and fills us. We thank you for his commitment to make us more like our Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom he indwells eternally. And so would our ears be opened and our hearts softened to be shaped and changed by this, your most precious word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat. Over the next few weeks... Around about 17 million young adults in the U.S. will graduate high school. Among them will be hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of Christian young people raised and educated in largely Christian environments, Christian schools, home-educated young people. And in the coming months, they will step out into the world. They'll go to work full-time for the first time, or they'll take on some training or perhaps go to college. And for many of them, a shock awaits as for the first time in their lives, they find themselves in an ideological environment that's very, very different from that in which they were raised. It will be jarring. The kind of proverbial ideological ice bath. A shock to the system as they encounter perhaps even hostility for the first time in their lives because of their Christian commitment. And these ideological differences I have in mind, I'm not just thinking about the kind of headline things, the transgender activism, the compulsory annual liturgical celebration of Pride Month and all the craziness. I'm thinking about all the little details, the backdrop to life, which you don't notice until it changes from what you've become so accustomed to. Just different political outlook, different economic outlook, Scripture speaks to economics and politics in ways that our young people have been shaped by, even though they may not be able to give you the Bible verses. The different attitudes that our young people will encounter to relationships, to leisure, to entertainment, the assumptions that will be made in their new social circle about entertainment and leisure activities and behavior and lifestyle and and the aspirations that people will have for the future. Like we were, here we are witnessing the first Sunday in worship of a newly married couple. It's been an aspiration, correct? 
Because it's a Christian aspiration. Let me tell you, that is not an aspiration for many who are not shaped by the gospel of Christ. Neither is the goodness of children part of their vision for the future. Neither is family life. There's so many different things. And potentially, almost everything will be different. As those hundreds of thousands or perhaps millions of Christian young people, including many among our number, many here today, step out for the first time into a world which is very, very different from what you're used to. Now, parents, I mean, you've been thinking about this, correct? This, this hasn't escaped your notice that your son is going away to college at some point. Was this part of the conversations that you had as you're thinking about where's a good place to go, where's a good place to work? Wouldn't it be great to find a Christian company to go work for? Turns out that there are some, but not all are as Christian as you'd like them to be. And actually, that's the same is true of many Christian colleges, of course. Many Young people know the disappointment of thinking they're going somewhere where they'll be at home, so to speak, and discovering that actually the, the temperature is a little different here. And actually, this is part of a broader phenomenon, which all of us experience in different ways from time to time, the kind of disjunction that takes place when you enter a world which is not shaped and saturated by the same Christian convictions that you've that you love, that you enjoy about fellowship meals and so on, where you're, you're there with your friends about whom you can make those assumptions that you can't make out there in the rest of the world. And it tends to create, I think, a range of reactions. Sometimes people are quite shaken up by it. Sometimes people are completely taken by surprise. They don't know what to do. Sometimes what happens, and this is particularly what I want to think about today, especially young people, but actually adults sometimes as well. You sometimes start to doubt yourself. There you are, you've gone into a new world in which there's all these smiling and successful young professionals or young college students, and they all think you're crazy, and maybe they're right. Maybe you did have that slightly sheltered upbringing that they're always talking about when you're not there and sometimes when you are. Maybe it's you. And where do you go? Where do you look? Where do you go for guidance and stability? And some, somebody, where do you go for a perspective which will actually give you something to cling to? And today I want to help you. I have no illusions about solving the problem comprehensively, but I think that we will find in today's text something that may be helpful. I want to start by just saying some basic things, but we'll get to the text in a second. First is you're not crazy. <laughs> you're not crazy. You might be different. Right? But in a crazy world, right, normal looks weird. And one of the things we have to try and encourage our young people to be ready for is, like, be ready to be thought of as weird. That's okay. Now, sometimes weirdness is wrong, because you're just, you are actually weird. <laughs> but we, we, we don't calibrate our thermometers by the waywardness of the world, do we? The other thing I want to say is you're not the first. This has happened many times, as I indicated. This happened to your parents. It's going to carry on happening to you. It's not just going to be when you first go to college or first go into the workplace or first start on some training course. It'll happen again and again and again. Every time the context shifts, you'll have to bring yourself back to something. And what do you bring yourself back to? I can't think of many texts better than this one because one reason we know that you're not the first people to encounter a sense of being not at home in your culture is because that's exactly what happened to the Thessalon Thessalonian church in the first century. 
Just think of the situation. You know the situation very well now. These are young Christians. They were converted during Paul's second missionary journey. It's a mixture of Jews and Gentiles in the church. And as a result of their turning to Christ, they're facing significant opposition, both from the kind of Greek, pagan, cultural background that some of them came from, and then especially in the book of Acts, it comes from the the hostility of the local synagogue leaders and the Jewish leaders in that part of the world. And they think they're weird. Like, what? what's happened to you crazy Christians? Like, what makes you think you're right all of a sudden? Because this poor Pharisee gone wrong comes through and starts telling you about Jesus the Messiah. Nutcase. Yeah? And that, so it arose in a slightly different context, of course, it arose in, not because you went out into a different world, but because you changed in first century Thessalonica. You became convinced of the truth and found yourself at sea in what used to be your home. But the situation is very different. The church is surrounded by a hostile culture. And actually, it's, it's sort of evident in, in chapter 1. If you look at the, the shape of the text, it's very interesting. Paul begins almost all of his letters after a kind of grace to you and peace bit, the first couple of verses. He begins with a report of his prayers. You look at chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, and so on, verses 3 and 4. And, and what the prayer report does is it sort of sets the stage. It tells us about the recipients and tells us what it is that Paul's praying for the recipients of the letter. And you notice the reading we had today from chapter 2, verse 13 we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. It's picking up the prayer report. We're still structurally right at the beginning of the letter. So what's going on? In between chapter 1, verse 5, down to chapter 2, verse 12, you've got this big section, which is all about how Jesus is going to respond to the hostile culture around them. It's very important thematically, but structurally, we're still in the introduction. Right? We're still at the point where Paul is giving thanks to God for them, telling them what he's praying for them, giving them the kind of big picture overall exhortations, which they're going to need to follow in the hostile world that they have been thrust into through their faith in Christ, hence the whole chunk of stuff about the day of the Lord and so on and so forth. You with me? So what would Paul say? It's like, okay, guys, we know that everyone around you now thinks you've gone stark raving bonkers, as we say in England. They all think you've gone mad. And so here's what we're praying for you. We're thanking God for you. We're, we're praying the Lord would, well, and there are three things. There are three themes that emerge from the reading I just gave you. I want to um, walk you through them one at a time. And on the face of it, they're very simple. Um, there are one or two moments, of course, where it goes a little deeper and we'll see how the time goes and how uh, far down the rabbit hole we can uh, lurch before uh, lunchtime. Anyway, first thing, just look at chapter 2 and verse 13. Paul begins by just thanking God for something very specific. He thanks God that the Thessalonian church was chosen by him. Look at me, verse 13. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Notice how God's choice of them rests on his love for them. Brothers, beloved, because God chose you. In the end, isn't it interesting, in the end, Everything comes down to the will of God, which means everything comes down to the being of God. God does what he does because he is who he is. And the foundational fruit of that in the life of a Christian believer is that God, God took hold of you 
There's you thinking that you understood the gospel when your next door neighbor didn't. And that's true, you did. But you did that because God took hold of you. God chose you. It's all about him. Everything is about him. This is the foundation, really, of the doctrine of uh, salvation by grace alone. Before the foundation of the world, God set his love on you and he chose you. God chose you through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel. This is why you responded to the call, you see. The call is Paul's word for uh, how those who are chosen by God from before the foundation of the world respond to the announcement of the truth that Christ is the King. They're called and they respond to the call in faith and repentance so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus, so that you may be conformed to the one who is the glory of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. I I so want to talk about the glory of God, and I kind of got lost in it a couple of weeks ago, and I'm not going to try and do it now, because I've got two other points today, not just one other point, and we really, you'll thank me for it later, but at some point we're going to have to talk about, and I'm going to get Pastor Neil to join in on this one, with what what the glory of God means in Scripture. I think it's a much richer theme than I've appreciated. And you are being conformed to that, whatever it is. The the majestic character of the living God in whose image you were originally made and in whose image Christ now is. That's your lesson. You've been chosen by God. And what happens, you see, what's going to happen to you if you care about that more than you care about anything else? Like, the the smart young man sitting next to you in the lecture room who you know thinks you're quite good at, you know, history, but a complete nutcase because you're a Christian. How, how much are you going to care about his opinion? Well, you, you hope to make friends with him. Don't you want him to be a believer like you? But whose opinion about you, whose decision about you do you really care about? You see, it reorients us, doesn't it? That there is... This could be wrong. You you, you could do this wrong, not caring what people think of you. But there is a deeply godly sense in which you just don't care what people think of you. Jesus didn't care about the opinions of men. Don't fear those who can only kill the body. Fear him who has power to cast body and soul into hell. There's a sense in which if you... If the thing you really are fixed on as you step out into a hostile world, an unfamiliar world, is that God, God's got hold of me because he loves me. Yeah, you won't care if people think you're mad. And as long as you're not mad, that's fine. Actually, what sometimes happens is that some people are changed and shaped by your madness, that is, sanity, to become sane themselves. I, I've, I've told some of you the story of my friend um, Andy Grice from... Um, undergraduate days. Remember Andy? So I looked him up this morning. So Andy Grice, I got, Andy Grice was the guy, he was a biochemist. Nothing wrong with biochemistry, by the way, right? But Andy Grice was a biochemist. My first year at college, I met Andy. Um, and he pretty soon realized that I and uh, my friend Clive and a few others of us were Christians, and he thought we were completely nuts. And he's the kind of guy who would, he'd come into a room and fill it. Like, if you invited him to a party, it might as well be Andy's party. You know, he's, he's a big character, and he's a lovely guy. But when he got the bit between his teeth, he could make you feel like this big. Seriously. Such an overpowering presence, really. 
Now, what's interesting, my friend Clive, particularly, he's a Christian, a uh, very dear friend of mine, my best man, I was his best man at his wedding. Um, Clive was such a sort of steady witness to him over many years. I, 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 I'm not sure how good I was. I, there were one or two conversations we had, but um, we lost touch after college. Right? He left after three years. I was still there for another sort of four or five. Um, slow learner. And um, next time I saw him, it was a theological seminary in North London, like, I don't know, 15 years later or 10 years later. He'd become a Christian and had been training as an evangelist and was beginning pastoral training, not at that seminary. He was just visiting for one day. He was at Bristol Bible College, or Baptist Bible College, I think. So I looked him up this morning. Andy Grice, <laughs> he's now the pastor of Salem Baptist Church in Cheltenham, England. Like, the guy who would make you feel like this big because you're crazy, saw the truth. Mostly, I think, embodied in Clive, my friend. No, you, there you are. So you're at university or in the new workplace you found, and everyone thinks you're mad. Be like Clive, because the guy next to you might end up like Andy. He, it's interesting, his photo, he looks just the same as he did 30 years ago. It's really funny. Andy Grice, are you listening? <laughs> I emailed him this morning. See if he finds that amusing. See, because what happens is if somebody, is, somebody has found their identity in the fact that God chose them, and they're like steadfast, we're coming to this in a second, because verse 15, stand firm, they can actually shape other people, you see. Now, so, praise God you're chosen by him. Now, I, hmm, this rabbit hole does go a bit deeper. I, I, some of you would have noticed, as I was reading uh, verse 13, uh, God chose you as the first fruit to be saved. Hands up if that's what your Bible says. So, seriously, hands up. Okay, there's a few people and lots of people being shy. Because if you've got an English standard version, that's what it says. A number of you will have something that says something more like, God chose you from the beginning to be saved. Have you got that? <laughs> Oops, what's going on? Now, I wouldn't normally go into this kind of detail, but it's kind of important here. Um, this is a, it's one of those times where the ancient scribes who copied the text by hand, somebody made a mistake. And it's a mistake in one letter. It's not, we've got, we've got some manuscripts that say uh, first fruits, aparkes, with a s at the end. Some that say from the beginning, which is aparken, with a nut at the end. You with me? Now, it's like, okay, how do we decide which is which? Now, um, there are some pretty good manuscripts that say from the beginning, and it's not that it's wrong. You see, what's interesting about these kind of tiny variations in manuscripts is they don't, they don't change Christian doctrine in some substantial way, but they do change emphasis sometimes. And so a lot of, especially older Bible translations, King James Version, that will say from the beginning. Um, but I actually think there's a good case to be made for saying it, it means first fruits. The ESV has got it right. Gasp. Don't everybody fall off the chairs at once. Um, there are some technical details here. Basically, I'll try and summarize a big, long debate as quickly as I can. Um, uh, Paul, the apostle, never elsewhere uses aparken to mean from the beginning. When he says aparken, it always means um, something, something else. It means like power or something, not the beginning. Um, when he does want to say from the beginning, he actually uses a different phrase altogether. This doesn't really sound like Paul, in other words. Uh, more than that, if you're, if you're trying to figure out which one's right, you've got to try and figure out how did you change from one to the other. Is it easy to explain 
changing from first fruits to beginning or beginning to first fruits. Now, it's quite easy actually to imagine a change from first fruits, if that was original, to um, beginning, just because it's more natural and obvious. Choji from the beginning seems to make sense, but if you're just a professional scribe who doesn't really know Paul's theology very well, Choju, and they said literally, Choju first fruits, it's like, what does that mean? You, you, you might imagine that somebody else made a mistake, or you might mishear it or something. Especially because there's a lot of S sounds in this sentence that could get tangled up with it and so on and so forth. So, in other words, I'm not 100% sure. I'll tell you in a second why it doesn't matter as well. But I think it's quite likely that the text here says first fruits. Now, if it does, and even if it doesn't, like I said, I'll tell you why that doesn't matter in a second. What does that mean? Why is that significant? Let me tell you. When Paul says, God chose you as the first fruits, that's not just saying you were the first people. We know that because the Philippians were converted in this region of Greece before the Thessalonians. The the Thessalonians aren't the chronologically first. That's not what first fruits means. Anybody who's read the Old Testament knows that first fruits has deep resonances with the Old Testament background of sacrifices and offerings. Remember what you're supposed to do? Deuteronomy uh, 26, Leviticus 23, when you come into the land and you get your harvest and, and the, the buds of corn start to grow or the first fruit comes off the trees, what's the first thing you're supposed to do? You take the first fruits and you give it to the Lord, yeah? And then what happens is, in Deuteronomy 26 and Leviticus 23, what it says is, well, a number of things. First, that first fruits is like the guarantee that you'll receive the rest. God's given you the first fruits of the harvest. You know the rest is coming. But more than that, when you give to God the first fruits, he accepts you as holy, and he accepts this as holy. The first fruits are holy enough, it's just apples or corn or something, but it's holy enough to be offered to God. And then God says, and I'm going to give you the rest. And so what we're doing, it's a little bit like tithing, yeah? We give to God the first tithe of what he gives us, confident that he's going to bless us, and he does. He looks after us. Now, that's fascinating because here it's people who are first fruits. And I was thinking, well, how can people be first fruits? And I went to Dr. Jordan just before the service and I said, hey, I need you to help me with something. (laughs) Well, see, in Revelation chapter 14, verse 4, okay, don't don't worry about Revelation chapter 14, verse 4. I'll tell you about it. You can look it up if you want to. It, It describes the, and it's, figurative, okay, 144,000 who are saved. They're the ones who've not bowed the knee to the beast from the sea, which is the apostate, ungodly Roman empire. They have remained holy and pure, and they are the first fruits to God. They're the, the martyrs in the first century, probably, if Dr. Lightheart's commentary is to be believed, and Dr. Lightheart's commentary is normally to be believed, right? I mean, um, it's probably... People who became Christians in that period between the ascension of Christ and the downfall of the temple in 70 AD, that 40-year period, they're the first fruits. And I I threw that past Dr. Jordan earlier, and he he sat there in silence for about four minutes. It's very unnerving when you ask Dr. Jordan a question and he sits there and doesn't say anything. You're like, oh my goodness, what's coming? And he didn't say it was terrible. He didn't say it was definitely not true, correct? Yeah, it might be. He's now stroking his beard. I'm in such trouble. But, you see, now this is the reason, 
This, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. This is the reason why it's not such a huge deal what it says in 2 Thessalonians 2, because Roman, Revelation 14 is pretty clear. That generation are the first fruits. Now, what does that mean? It means God chose this little church as that kind of among the holy first portion of believers to be offered to God in a way that's parallel with the holy first portion of the old covenant harvest that's offered to God. And we know what that first fruits of the old covenant harvest means, don't we? Once you've given the first fruits, the whole lot is holy and God is definitely going to give it to you. So why is this such an important thing for us to remember? Why it's so significant is you're not the first fruits. We and countless other believers since the final end of that old covenant age with the destruction of Israel's temple and the the beginning of the spread of the gospel all across the globe, we are that which God guaranteed because of the first fruits. They're the ones who suffered. They're the martyr believers for whom faith in Christ meant hostility. And some of you would have noticed that the <laughs> it was a bit of a strain, wasn't it, for me to draw a parallel between your experience of going to college and the guy next to you thinks you're a bit mad, and people literally being killed for their faith in the first century by people who thought they were mad. Bit of a stretch, isn't it? And so why is this preserved? It's preserved so that we see those men and women who, you know, we, <laughs> we think we've suffered. Yeah, really. Really. Not really. We are not the first fruits. We're the harvest that the living God is bringing in that he always promised that he'd bring in because of their faithfulness. Later on today, we're going to be talking about the, what we propose to do to handle the wonderful growth that the Lord is bringing us here at All Saints. Why are we growing? Well, we're growing because the first fruits was accepted as holy. Our forefathers in the faith, many of whom died because Jesus. And God is now accepting and welcoming this growing harvest down through the ages of which we are privileged to be a part. It's really interesting, isn't it, when the most hard-hitting part of the Bible comes from the fact that it's not about you, like somebody else really suffered. Does that remind you of anybody? <laughs> somebody else really suffered so that we sit here in air-conditioned comfort? Yeah. So God chose them as first fruits. Second, let me... Uh, move a bit more quickly through this. The second thing Paul does in verse 15 is he urges these young Christians to stand firm against opposition. Just look with me at verse uh, 15. So then, brothers, stand firm. Remember Clive and Andy Grice? Stand firm. And hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Stand firm. Can you see what he's saying? That is a very common uh, expression in Paul's writings. Uh, the word literally is stand, actually, but it's often translated as stand firm. And, and you know what it means? It's just like you've got to stand firm against unbelief. You've got to stand firm against compromise. You, you need to be like the tree planted by streams of water. You need to be like the pillar in the temple that's not going to fall down because it's holding the rest of the whole building up. Stand firm. And Paul urges them, says, stand firm. 
Like you, you, it's not you that's crazy. The world thinks you've gone mad. The whole town is in uproar because you believe in Jesus. Stand firm, don't move. Who do you think of when you... Who would, they, who would their minds have been cast back to? As they, would it be like the heroes of the faith? If you had to think back to the old covenant scriptures and think of men and women who stood firm, who would you think of? I think of Daniel always. He's the obvious guy, isn't he? You remember the, the young man? Huh. Young man. College-age kid. At university in the court of the Babylonians. And his name is changed. You're going to be Belteshazzar and you've got to eat the king's food. And he's like, yeah, whatever. Okay, I'll go to school. And I'll excel, and I'll work hard for you, O king. And I'm going to stand out from the crowd because I'm not going to eat the king's food. And my name is Daniel. It's a wonderful verse, isn't it? Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. You've got all this stuff about you've got to eat the food, and, um, and your name shall be Belteshazzar. Chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the king's food. That's how you've, you've all seen the film, The Matrix. I used this illustration before. There's a wonderful moment... Um, when um, Agent Smith is fighting Neo and he keeps calling him Mr. Anderson. I love this illustration. I could use this all day. Once in my Bible study, you had the same thing, I think. And, and it's just that moment where Neo wins in the, this big fight with this kind of computerized virus, Agent Smith. And he says, you remember what he says? He says, and, he, and Smith calls him Mr. Anderson just one last time. And he says, my name is Neo. And I think then he kicks him in the chest like halfway across the tube station. It's wonderful, isn't it? It's like, my name is Daniel, which means, you know what Daniel means? What Belteshazzar probably means may Bel, the, um, the idol, Bel, may Bel protect the king. <laughs> you know what Daniel means? God is my judge. God is my judge. God is the one about whose opinion I care. God is my judge. So stand firm. It's interesting uh, when you realize that it's the word stand, literally, not stand and then firm, it's just stand, your mind might be cast back again to others who stood. Um, those who stood in the presence of the Lord, prophets and priests particularly, the verb to stand in the Old Testament scriptures is often used just to describe what a prophet is and what a priest is. A priest is one who stands before the Lord. It's like, I don't care what's going on out there in the world, I'm standing before the Lord. Before the Lord I'll stand and fall. So it doesn't mean that you're constantly raging against the world. Not everybody has to be like Neo. Not everybody needs to be like Daniel, actually. But there's, there's a certain attitude, isn't there, that says, I'm just going to stand because I'm standing before the Lord. A couple of other details. Just look with me. Uh, notice the first thing. that The connection between this and the previous couple of verses is, is counterintuitive when you first think about it, but then it crystallizes, I think. Verses 13 and 14, God chose you. And we all know God's decree, God's choice is irreversible. God can't unchoose people. And so, verses 13 and 14, God chose you. So verse 15, chill out, relax, it's all going to be fine. No. God chose you, verses 13 and 14, so stand firm. God ordains the means as well as the end. You with me? That the way you will be caused to stand firm, the way that, pardon me, the way that you'll be caused to uh, work out the choice of God before the foundation of the world in the whole of human history and in your life, the way that you'll bring God's irrevocable choice to pass is by you hearing, you listening, and you standing firm. 
We are the way in which God does his work. Philippians uh, 2, work out your salvation because God is at work in you. You with me? Also, this traditions thing is really intriguing. Let me say just a quick word about this because, look, verse 15, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. And, and we are, um, we're probably more accustomed on balance to thinking of traditions negatively, aren't we, rather than positively. If you think, because we're all recovering from the Reformation still, where traditions were the problem, yeah? And so reflecting that kind of priority, many times in the New Testament, traditions are negative. Like Mark 7, you know, uh, the Pharisees who care more about the traditions of their fathers than the word of God. Um, Galatians 1.14, again, the, the traditions of the fathers are opposed to the gospel. Colossians 2, the false teachings are called the traditions, human traditions. Same word. But it is quite intriguing that one or two times in Scripture, traditions are used, the term is used positively. And it's, it's very instructive to think why. Now here, and notice who they were taught the traditions by. <laughs> I mean, just look at verse 15. The traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word, face to face with you, when we were visiting you for, you know, a couple of months or something, or our letter, probably First Thessalonians, it's a letter. But the word traditions is used elsewhere, just in the next chapter, in terms of specific behaviours that they are to imitate. Look, chapter 3, verse 6. We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Now, we're going to come to this in a few weeks' time, but it looks like the tradition that they received then is not so much just teaching, it's not just doctrinal, it's an example. Paul worked really hard. You saw how hard we worked, Keep away from anybody who's walking in idleness and not in accordance with the tradition. And it goes on in verse 7. For you know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. We didn't take anybody's bread without paying for it. We worked hard night and day so that we wouldn't be a burden to any of you. And that's the whole of, most of uh, chapter 3 is all about that. In other words, traditions, and this is profoundly helpful, I think, for young people when they're leaving home and going away for the first time. Traditions are about the habitual embodied practices that stabilize you, right? You, there's a bunch of things that you do daily now, young people. You've been doing them. I hope you've been reading your Bible and spending a bit of time in prayer with your family or on your own every day, right? That's the tradition that you've been... There's nowhere in the Bible that it says you've got to do that, right? If somebody said, well, I want to do it in the evening and somebody says, I want to do it in the morning, it's like, I have no word from the Lord on this matter. But, but, but you have... There are stabilizing practices, aren't there? Well, don't jettison them and expect to be able to stand firm. Actually, the same thing applies in many different changes of circumstances, looking at a newly married couple over there. You're in a wonderful position to think, okay, what, what traditions, in other words, what biblically informed, wise, stabilizing practices do we want to be shaped by in the coming years? And you can put them in place in your home. And still be doing them when you're 95 or something. And she's looking at each other, it's like, that's going to be awesome. Yes. Yeah. Now, um, within that context, of course, you start to see the value of, just look again at verse uh, 15. So then, brothers, corporately, stand firm. So, so again, maybe that's a, a hint that we need not just the stabilizing influences of habits and of the word of the apostle, but the community we're, we're with, brothers. 
Don't try and do it alone. But if you're going away to college, your first job before you go is to find a church you're going to be going to. Don't wait till you get there and you're halfway through the first semester and thinking, I probably should find a place to worship God. Yes, you probably should have done three months ago. You with me? So, stand firm. Then finally, the the final bit of Paul's um, prayer report for them. Verses 16 and 17. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Paul prays very simply that the Lord would comfort them. Isn't that a wonderful prayer? Maybe that's something that you pray for your kids. Maybe that's something you want to pray for yourselves, in this, that the Lord would comfort you. It's interesting, the, the word comfort is, in English, is more, I guess it's sort of passive in orientation. Um, the Greek word means something a bit more like urge or encourage, um, or, or perhaps even exhort. Uh, you, uh, you will have heard preachers in the past uh, talk about uh, the word, have you, have you heard people say the word paraclete? Have you heard that? People, paraclete, it, that's the noun form of encourager that's found in Jesus' farewell discourse in John's Gospel. When he says, I'm going to send you a paraclete. This is the verb form, paracleto. And the word means not comforter in the passive sense, but one who comes alongside you to encourage you, to strengthen you, to urge you. You actually see it by how Paul speaks in 1 Thessalonians, with the same kind of terminology. Chapter 2, verse 12. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Chapter 4, verse 1. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that just as you receive from us how you ought to live, so you carry on doing it. It's not like we're trying to comfort you. No, it's like, come on. You're leaving home, you're stepping out into the world. Because by God's grace you've been brought to this point, you need, to, you need encouragement to stand. And so Paul prays for that encouragement. It is fascinating, of course, though, that back to um, how Jesus uses the word to speak of the Spirit. It's almost like uh, encouragement and courage and the urging to stand in faithfulness, as well as that comfort of knowing the presence of God is, is personalized in the Spirit. I will send you another encourager. And so then you look down at, at the text in front of us, and you realize, yeah, just as we began at the beginning of that prayer report in verses 3 and 4, we noticed it's Trinitarian, do you remember? I'll show you again. Um, in verse 1 and 2, well, in verse 2, grace to you and peace from... God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You think, Father? Jesus Christ, where's the Spirit? Huh, grace and peace. Grace and peace are personalized. Spirit of grace and peace. So also here. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ, Son, and God our Father, Father, who loved us and gave us the eternal encourager, the eternal exhorter, the eternal comforter. Trinitarian again. And so what Paul's prayer is, is that those young people, those young Christians, my prayer for you young people, and indeed for all of us, is that we would stand firm, holding to what we've received against a hostile world, confident that God has chosen us, and 
that we do so because God himself, Father, Son, and Encourager, Comforter, the one who urges us along the way, Father, Son, and Spirit, is indwelling us personally. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we thank you for your life that is at work in us by the Spirit whom you and your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, sent into the world. May we stand firm. May we be those confident above all else of your love for us and of your choice of us. And so may we be comforted and encouraged as we step out in faith to live for Christ every day of our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.